Hello, Behind the Irishman fans. I'm Chris Tapley, and I host The Call Sheet, a Netflix podcast that brings you detailed conversations about the making of your favorite Netflix films and series. What you're about to hear is a special bonus episode for the Behind the Irishman series, namely my interview with costume designers Sandy Powell and Christopher Peterson. Among other things, we discussed the costume department's gargantuan undertaking on Martin Scorsese's film, outfitting thousands of background players, hundreds of featured characters, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy, and if you want more interviews with the talent behind Netflix films and series, please check out The Call Sheet wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Chris Tapley, and you're listening to The Call Sheet, a show that dives deep into the craft of your favorite Netflix films and series with some of the most talented artists and artisans in the game. We're going to be discussing one of the hottest films of the year today, so let's go ahead and have our guests tell you who they are. My name is Sandy Powell, and my craft is costume design. My name is Christopher Peterson, and my craft is costume design. Cinema is a visual medium, obviously. That means visual storytelling. How characters move in the frame, how they are situated in their environment how imagery is juxtaposed. These are the building blocks of filmmaking. That stretches to every department, including, of course, costumes. What characters wear says as much about them as any other element, and telling the story through clothing is as vital as telling it through photography, production design, sound design, and all other aspects of the trade. Costume designer Sandy Powell is a legend in this regard. She's racked up 14 Oscar nominations and three wins throughout her 30-plus year career. Just last year, she was a dual nominee for The Favorite and Mary Poppins Returns, and that wasn't even the first time she's picked up two nominations in one year. It happened twice before. Halfway through his own career, Christopher Peterson began collaborating with Sandy as an assistant on films like The Departed, The Wolf of Wall Street, and Carol, while also being an in-demand designer in his own right on projects such as Boardwalk Empire and Magic Mike. The two took up the reins together on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, a decade-spanning epic about the life and times of Teamsters union boss Jimmy Hoffa, and as you'll soon hear, their work was cut out for them. On this episode, Sandy and Christopher will talk about working with limited details on something like this, when the photo research trail runs cold. They're going to talk about a few specific outfits from the film and how they were conceived, and you'll also learn how everything from Death in Venice to Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome has inspired them in their work. We're going to talk about all that and a whole lot more, so let's get into it. All right, guys, well, let's start at the beginning. Uh, you know, Sandy, this is the first time you've taken on a, a full-on co-conspirator. I know you guys have uh, worked together in the past on other movies, but the reason is the sheer volume that we're dealing with on on this movie. And I just wonder if you could like help us visualize that to start. How many costumes are we talking about? How many changes for some of these actors are we talking about? We're talking over 600 costumes and for Robert De Niro himself, 102. Um, with extras, we had over 6,500 extras, I believe, wow. in total covering, you know, five decades. You decided right off the bat, I need, I need some help on this. Is that I the deal? I did. But also, also, I had just finished or wasn't quite finished on the two films I was working on in London, Mary Poppins Returns and The Favourite. Mm -hmm. And then The Irishman came up and I wasn't available to sort of drop everything and, and run to do it. And I thought, well, I, I don't even know how I can do this without somebody that I know and trust working with me. Yeah. At which point I contacted Christopher to ask if he was up for, the, up for the job. And he actually started several weeks before me doing all the sort of background 
and the mm-hmm. research and getting everything set up so that by the time I arrived, quite a lot had already been started research-wise, really, wasn't it? It wasn't as though I started in some vacuum without Sandy's voice in my head. And that's a two-parter, basically. We'd worked together so many times that um, I sort of knew where to start and what information to bring to the table. And, and we communicated during that period. And then when finally we were together, I think we started in L.A.? Yes, we I started. think we did. Yes, we did. We started. So yeah. it was just, I mean, it was uh, a sort of, it's pretty seamless. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. the way we've worked together in the past. This one being different in that there's a different credit. Yeah. Well, tell me about what your first step tends to be like as soon as you finish the script. It starts, well, reading the script and then meeting with the director, mm-hmm. you know. And so that's the first thing really is to hear what uh, the director, Martin Scorsese, has to say about it and what his vision is and any instructions from him. Um, and then diving into the research. And then pretty soon after that, really getting our hands on actual clothes, actually coming to look, coming to LA specifically to the costume houses, which is where we started, and getting our hands on actual clothes and looking at the real thing. Now, you said that uh, uh, Mr. Scorsese loves clothes, that he's interested in clothes. And I want to know how, how that affects you in tangible ways, like specifically on this project. Well, it's really beneficial to have a, a director who likes clothes and is interested and has an understanding of them because um, not all of them do, strangely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it makes it a lot easier in a way. I mean, he, he, you get a, an immediate response and he knows what he's looking at. So all the feedback is, is, is genuine. Yeah. And I sort of believe what he says when he's talking about (laughs) knowing about it. With Marty and with Bob and Al and Harvey, they're all New Yorkers and they all grew up in this time period that the film spans. And so they have a real appreciation for what the tie would be. Yeah, they all knew what shape tie goes with, you know, which lapel on a a jacket or suit Mm -hmm. jacket. What belt it would be, what kind of shoe, you know, how... In how things were worn. And so there were, there were many days when, you know, we, we learned things from yeah, all they, of them. They knew more than us. Especially about Marty, especially Marty, yeah. because, you know, I think our first meeting, we had done several fittings with Bob and Al mm-hmm. and maybe Joe at that point. And we presented Marty with a... We presented him with, a, with a, the initial costume fitting photographs. Now, the, the initial, the, when you first meet an actor, you try things on, it really is just a very, very sort of first go, mm-hmm. we put things on that we hoped would fit, but were sort of relevant to each of the periods. And you get a feel straight away of what's going to work and what's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the, they're usually the first visuals that we show Marty because research wise, he would already have seen most of the research because a lot of it actually comes from him and his office who have already, you know, exhausted quite a lot of the, um, the sources that, mm-hmm. that were available to us. Yeah. Now he's also he also said at the outset that these these guys aren't flashy, so this wasn't meant to be Goodfellas Casino that world. But you're still I want people to understand you're still telling the story through clothing, and I want to know what that story was. I mean, character by character, it's different. But you know, just Frank Sheeran, what was the story you were telling through clothes with Frank Sheeran? It's a really complicated question because yeah. the design brief, you know, and the impetus for you know the visuals of Goodfellas and and casino were driven by, you know, excess. And to a certain degree, there was a slightly vulgar nature to, you know, Ace and Ginger in Casino and to Henry Hill and in Goodfellas. And this one, 
it comes at a very particular time in the arc of, you know, the mafia in the United States where they'd just been busted at Appalachian and they really all had to go under the radar. And so while they cared about what they wore and they knew about clothing, they made it their business to, to not be photographed, to not be noticed and to get on with the business of of running their families. Mm-hmm. Right? Not be overtly flashy or yeah. draw attention to themselves. Right. So, but with Frank, because he, he, he's the one character that goes, you know, through all of the decades. Um, it's sort of, it's, it sort of ha- occurs naturally. It wasn't like we set out to, you know, okay, in, in this decade or in this scene, he's going to wear this because it's going to say this about him and mm-hmm. the story. It's just dressing this man, you know, from a young man and imagining what, you know, Robert De Niro would have looked like you know, as Frank Sheeran, you know, 30, 40 years ago, as opposed to how we're dressing him now. And just going through all of those decades, and it sort of happens naturally. You sort of see the changes happen naturally. Of course, you know, he starts out without a great deal of money. I mean, he's not, you know, he, he, come, he came from a working class background. And so that's how he starts out. But then as he moves up in that world, you see he has a bit more money and his clothes get a bit more expensive looking. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, as, as Christopher said before, not flashy, but you, he has more, he has more clothes and they're a bit nicer than they were at the beginning. They fit better maybe. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what kinds of little interesting details did your research turn up about these people and what they wore and what, what, what they wore might've said about who they were? Offer again, not another sort of working class man. His suits really were meant to look just off the peg. I mean, nothing, not particularly tailored, but Having said that, he still was very well put together and smart. And it's sort of, he, he sort of, it meant a lot to him to be well turned out and look res- respectable, which he actually, you know, that he actually says in that scene in Miami where he, he's crazy at Tony Pro for being disrespectful and turning up in shorts. Up in shorts. And then his funny little quirk that we notice in all the photographs was that he, he wears white socks with a suit, which... Mm. For me, I don't. I think that's really weird. Maybe a lot of people do that, but I've never really seen it before. It's you know, and, and especially in the sixties when the pants were sort of like narrower and a bit shorter, you you see you them see quite them. a lot. These sort yeah. of thick white socks. What's that about? I don't know. Just I the, don't know. The guy just wasn't a fashion socks. icon. That's I mean, all it was. was. <laughs> we couldn't find anything written about it. I mean, there wasn't anything. It's I, just it's just what he liked. You yeah. know, it's just a quirk. I think it's one of those vestiges of somebody who grew up poor and was told, you know what the uniform was for a successful man, but it's this one little vestige of the thing that he's done all of his life. He didn't think about matching the, the socks to the, the pant leg. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's, it's, uh, it's character. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, obviously there, 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 there wasn't actual material on each of the characters about their clothing and where they might've bought their clothing. So all we had were the photographs that existed or the film footage of Hoffa that existed. Look at that. Look at how that, particular character dressed and then sort of transcribe that in a way to our actors because the actors, none of the actors look like the parts they're playing, but they're doing their version. They're doing their version of Hopper or Frank Sheeran or Russell Buffalino. Mm-hmm. Was there anything specific about other people uh, in a similar vein? Like you say, you saw the, the photos with the white socks with Hoffa, but anything with Russell, anything with Frank that you just noticed in the photographs that was just like, oh, that's... I think Russell looked the 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 sort of best dressed of all of them and the most meticulously dressed I would have thought, don't you think? Yeah. And he was also along with Harvey, you know, because basically the structure of it was that Harvey was, you know, the boss and 
um, Joe was the underboss and, you know, Frank was a soldier for them and just did their bidding. And so, you know, both with Harvey and Joe, there was more attention to the tie bars and the cufflinks. And they were, I don't want to say that they were suddenly dandified, but they were sharper than yeah. there was that distinction that we very, you know, consciously made that, you know, Frank, well, he looked nice because that's the uniform for those men that Harvey and Joe, um, definitely were sharper. And then there's this very interesting story point that came out of the research about the ring, the, the Liberty ring mm -hmm. that Joe's character, um, gives to, to Frank. And the only other person that has the ring in addition to Joe is Harvey's character. Yeah. Bruno. Mm -hmm. And that was a very specific, you know, thing that came out of the research. And interestingly, both, um, Joe and Harvey in the fittings would be the ones where, you know, you'd be sort of like talking about an eighth of an inch difference in, in, right. in a cuff or where a button sits on a jacket. I mean, you know, that would go on for quite a while yeah, more than anybody else. And I think that a, a part of, you know, a part of that seems to be that that's what those characters would have done as well. It, yeah. it felt like it was right for those characters. Actually, I was obsessed with this story before I saw the movie. I read the book. I read two drafts of the screenplay. Like the book is amazing. And I'm just wondering if when you were reading the book, if there was anything in there that also stood out. I don't think clothes came into it. I, I do remember that we had to really hunt. We had to really scour everything for every, every piece of information that we needed. I mean, we were fortunate enough to have in our department, Frank Sheeran's granddaughter, mm -hmm. who actually happens to work in, in costume. And so she was working with us. And she did bring in a few extra photos that we hadn't seen before. So... That's, that's what we had to do. We just had to rely on things like that. I had a question about her later. I'll, I'll bring it up now. Was there anything that she, she brought to you that sort of unlocked any doors for you or was it just added material that really? Well, I mean, she, I mean, she kind of granted us access to, and not just us, um, to Marty and to Bob as well, access to a group of family photos that, again, as Sandy said earlier, you know, we're costuming Bob. We're not costuming the actual man. but there were certain, you know, touchstones in all of the photographs that allowed us to, allowed us a view into who this man was and certain things, you know, we lifted and other things we, I mean, ignored. And, yes. and there were some things that wouldn't, that, that the real Frank Sheeran, who was six foot four, you know, might've worn that wouldn't work on Bob. Do you know what I mean? And you, I mean, if we were trying to replicate everything we saw, it would be, it would be impossible to do considering the, the scale of the film. So sure. We were doing we were doing our versions of inspired by, you know, the photographs that we had access to. You know, we tried to capture our version of mm -hmm. these men based on, you know, we had much more uh, uh, visual reference for Frank Sheeran than we had for the other men. I mean, there might have been maybe six photos of Russell Buffalino. Wow, really? Yeah, and fuzzy, uh, fu you know, really sort of like fuzzy ones from a from a newspaper. And interestingly, huh. um, Marianne Bauer, who is part of Marty's staff, who's also a researcher for all of his films, we were talking one day, and I said, "Oh, there's this photograph of Joe Colombo," and I sent it to Marianne, and she said, "Wait a minute, that's Ruff Russell Buffalino in the background." You know, and none of us. So that was, you know, no one knew. Yeah. yeah, nobody knew. It's all these happy accidents mm -hmm. between like the things that Sandy and I found together with Marianne. It just, it kept kind of, you know, unfolding before us. Yeah. I'm curious, was there any uh, example where 
you know, the design and, and creativity took like a notable detour from what you had discovered in the research because, you know, for whatever reason you were trying to accent a certain element of the story or something, was there anything that you just decided to shy away from maybe the reality of what you found? I would say the only, the only, you know, step that maybe we took was to be a bit more adventurous with, you know, color, you know, and not to just do endless men in dark suits, you know? Well, except we didn't know because a lot of the images that we were given were black and white. We didn't know what right. colors were being used. I mean, we used color as much as we could. So, yeah, exactly. So that it wouldn't be a sea of gray yeah. <laughs> and dark suits. <laughs> But I mean, there are, you know, men do wear suits with color. I mean, through the, through the decades, we, in, in the 50s, we sort of used a lot of blues and grays. And in the 60s, we used sort of olive greens and mustards. And in the 70s, there are the burgundies and browns. So sort of tried to introduce color as much as possible to, to tell the passage of time as well. Equally. This is uncanny because this is my next question was all about color. I wanted to start talking <laughs> about how we're, how we're actually implementing uh, these designs uh, practically. So I, I wanted to start with, with color palette and any kind of a color theory that you might have worked with the other departments on to carry the story all the way through. So what can you tell me about that? Well, I guess pretty much what I just said about yeah. the, the, for us, the colors, I mean, the colors, you know, colors come in fashion, you know, and you, you can look at a decade and see which colors are, are dominant and prominent. So mm -hmm. we had that for a start. And then also Rodrigo was... Um, well, talking I mean, to us about what his plans were. So we knew that that would affect everything too. We had some camera chairs, didn't we? I mean, he started the 50s in Kodachrome, a Kodachrome process on what he was doing and then moved to Ektachrome, I believe, and then a DNR process for the 70s. So each, each segment, you know, tracked through with a, a slightly different look. And so suddenly that affected a bit of the colors that, you know, that we were using and how they, they filmed, right? I guess. Yeah. yeah, but we didn't change anything because of mm -hmm. that. You know, we mm -hmm. still stuck to what we were doing because our colors were sort of correct for the period. Mm -hmm. Told our story that way. So was there anything about like a certain color represents X no. for this character? No, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I'm sure some designers do that. I mean, I personally don't ever think about doing that. I don't yeah. sort of get too symbolic with it. This was, again, meant to be like a very real representation of the world mm. that we were portraying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to step outside of that and suddenly have some highly stylized color moment would, would seem... I think it would have, yeah, looked out of place and been right. wrong. Uh, what about the, just the physical production, the vast fleet of people putting this together, I imagine? Uh, what, did, like, what did the shop look like? I don't know. You tell me. Like, like an aircraft hangar <laughs> filled with... I mean, we had racks and racks and racks of costumes. It was extraordinary how many there are. And... and Basically, the department had to be run like a military operation mm. because, I mean, it was, it was almost like, because our, our biggest decades, really, the, most of it takes place in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So it was really like doing three films concurrently. So we had, you know, literally three times as many costumes as you would normally in a period film, mm -hmm. you know, because in every decade, there'd be hundreds and hundreds of extras. So thousands of costumes all sort of all um organized by by date by period not just decades but by one end of the decade to the next end of the decade yeah uh, and presumably tailoring's going on constantly too so there's absolutely yeah. full time full you know, time right the way through right till practically the last week of shooting sandy and i had a group of four assistants each of whom had a very specific task one was a made to order assistant one was in charge of background one was in charge of principals and then there was a there were like two buyers as well. So that's kind of one world. And then there was the tailoring 
shop run by very extraordinary tailors. And they had 10 people the entire time. There was another floor of um, people who did nothing but prep the costumes that had been pre-fit. Mm-hmm. There was the second. Se- I mean, it was. Just, and then it was there was m- another. Then there was another group of people that would have to actually clean all the costumes once they'd been massive. Worn. So then it's it's huge. And then there is one person who's our supervisor, David Davenport, who runs the whole show, pretty much. Yeah. And he's the equivalent of a producer, I guess. Wow, it's like having a producer in your department. Although he is one of, he's the costume supervisor, but he has an acumen with producers and staff and actors and designers he just it's i mean there were people even working shifts there was a night shift as well so wow. that so that things would be ready you know so things would come off extras at the end of one shooting day and we might need them the next day so they have to come off be washed if necessary prepped put back, hung back up and all ready to go the next day continuity paid attention to throughout as Absolutely, well I mean, that's of just what an endeavor I wanted to uh, take some time here and talk about a few specific outfits in the film, and maybe you can speak to the design or how they came to be. Uh, Tony Provenzano's casual look in the Miami scene we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you know, <laughs> comes in in his shorts and his shirt, and well, completely different vibe than the rest. Yeah, well, that was in the script that yeah. he that he shows up in shorts. So you know, and, and Stephen Graham was great fun to work with. I mean, he's such a character, and I'd worked with him before years ago actually on Gangs of New York. With Marty, um, what we did was we had hundreds of pairs of shorts and, and lots of different <laughs> tops, and we just kept trying them on, kept trying on every combination until until one sort of revealed itself as being the perfect <laughs> one. That's kind of what happened. Yeah, you sort of you sort of know when you hit the right one. That was the first scene I saw from the movie. They showed a couple of scenes before they showed the full film to a few of us, and I was just laughing uncontrollably in that scene. Al is so good in it. Yeah, just yeah, they all are. And then and then you know. Bob's there sort of trying to keep the peace. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. really funny. Uh, the wives matching, uh, kind of matching outfits during the road trip. Mm. Uh, that, that's a, an opportunity for you to break out a little bit from the suits. and It was. Had to be that fun. was very exciting. Yeah. Yes. The wives was a, a great opportunity to sort of get away from menswear for a bit. And we kind of dressed them as if, you know, they're obviously close. They've known each other for years. And the, the sort of women that probably go shopping together, mm-hmm. you know, and I can imagine one of them phoning up and saying, what are you wearing? You know, how many outfits are you taking? What are you wearing to when we go out to dinner? And so we sort of did it along those lines. And quite often we fitted them both together, mm. you know, which was great because then, you know, they're, they're sort of talking to each other about it. They're swapping things around. And we were like, you, you know, Stephanie, you put that on, Catherine wear that. No, actually, Stephanie put Catherine's top on, swap over, because they were pretty similar size. Mm-hmm. It was funny because it happened completely organically and essentially accidentally because somehow the fitting times got crossed and so suddenly they were both there at yeah. the same time for the first fitting and it was like oh, well it oh. was like going shopping with them both at the same time you know <laughs> yeah. uh russell's christmas outfit his you know, <laughs> tie and all of that tell me about that well i mean all of the christmas outfits are a little bit christmasy i mean that was a that was a, a scene again our other scene that we could get some color in so i mean i think everyone's wearing either red or green aren't they i mean the, the ladies one's wearing a green dress one's wearing a red dress and uh and the girls are all and the girls matching. are all dressed up, and I kind of feel like Russell's sweater and tie. It kind of feels like his wife made him put him up. Yeah, I know, <laughs> yeah, because <it's, laughs> you know it seems like just out of character, I guess. In some in some, it sense. is. It's like so. you know, he's like you know, go on, Russell, you could make an effort. And much <laughs> the, kids are, the kids are coming round exactly, know? and much softer than like the suits and ties and tie bars that we'd seen him up till then. Yeah, yeah. definitely. 
Uh, I love Frank's truck driver uniform and the hat. You know, I assume that's that. I, I sense the history coming off of an outfit like that. So that's probably deep in your research where you found all of that. But tell me, the outfit that we we um, devised for him is is really it's steeped in in tradition for like what the Teamsters wore at the time. There yeah. was always a cap. There was always the badge. There was leather jackets were very prevalent. It was workwear, you know, and it was nice because it set. It gave us a nice place to start and jump off from, you know, mm-hmm. just before he dives into all of the suits to see him in, in something. Yeah, because he never looks like that again. Yeah. Really. Right. And it's just, and it really was to sort of set aside, this is him at his youngest, apart from when he's in the, uh, the army uniform in the war mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is the youngest, Frank. Was there, speaking of that, was there more war stuff ever sh- that was shot for this? Because it was an in- interesting to me, it was such a, a huge part of the beginning of the book. In an earlier script, there was, there was a bit more warfare. The first part of the book is really beautiful and it does explain a lot, but I don't think it takes anything away from the movie that eventually came to be. But, but yeah, there may have been more, more of, you know. I think there was originally a bit more war stuff. The essence is still there in the film anyway. And then what's interesting about it to me is just how the regiment he was a part of, it just kind of explains the, the war yeah, made him like, a killer. Like 400 I mean, active battle days yeah. that he served. I mean, he was a monster. Yeah. You know, he was a machine. Yeah, absolutely. And then going to the end of the timeline, just the Lewisburg prison garb. I mean, uh, I assume there's plenty of research that led to that as well, but is there anything interesting to say about that stuff? Yeah. I mean, the federal prisons at the time, it was very different because, I mean, the federal pr- prison system basically bought all of the seconds from the World War II uniforms. Mm-hmm. And so all of those, that clothing became you know, the prison uniforms. It's not like now where they have all these horrible polyester, you know, <laughs> orange is the new black sort of, you know, mm-hmm. uniforms. Then it was just workwear. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's the sort of history of, of where that clothing comes it's from. It's actually much nicer. It's actually quite cool looking. Well, it's, it's, it's chic. Big. It's chic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everything now is designed to be sort of a well, hideous. I, 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 humiliating. Humiliating, <laughs> exactly. It's meant to look awful, but I mean, I think none of them look bad in, in their prison gear. Yeah, no, I mean, and again, even when you get to um, the, the scenes at the end of the movie with Russell well, and... Without his teeth in. Without his teeth in. Um, you know, even that was the same, yeah. the same vibe. It was work where it's only, it's only in the last 20 years where we've suddenly gone to, you know, you know polyester, bulletproof, orange and tan scrubs. So, mm. yeah. it was, and it was nice to see. Yeah. Uh, something maybe worth spotlighting here. You talked about the the specific rings that are a part of the the story, uh, but just finger wear in general, rings that might. I mean, was was there a lot of focus on what kind of rings these guys were wearing and and stuff? So anything come to mind for that? They wouldn't really have worn wedding rings. They didn't trick men. Didn't back then really wear wedding rings. They would just have a signet ring that they might have had. Mm-hmm. I mean, but so the, anyway. the significance of kind of a Frank's jewelry was. I mean. He was given a, you know, Teamster watch when he became like the president of the local. And then Jimmy, it's a very interesting moment in the script, actually, you know, which is the Frank Sheeran um, appreciation dinner mm-hmm. where kind of everything comes everyone, together and yeah. the decision is made where Frank is presented with a decision that, you know, by Russell and Jimmy, that they're both commanding his loyalty. But on that night is the night where Frank gets, you know, the Liberty coin ring from Russell. Mm-hmm. And he also gets you know, a Tissot watch from, from Jimmy that's engraved, you know, as a gift. So it's this kind of interesting moment where these, these two men are demanding loyalty of him. And it's also two men, like men, like do men give each other jewelry as gifts anymore? Because I think it might've been a thing then. 
I don't know. I don't think I've ever given a, 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 a yeah, dude, but I dude think, friend I think a then ring. Then it was. And <laughs> yeah, so, interesting. so as far as, you know, like the man jewelry, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a period of tie bars and, and cufflinks and, yeah. and, and they weren't the kind of gangsters rings. to be wearing diamonds, you know, they've no, they're not got yeah. the big, you know, fistful of rings and, and showy things as they're not being showy. So. Same kind of question, but regarding neckties, I feel like neckties are an opportunity to do neckties something else big. here. So, neckties yeah. are big in neckties. this film. It's <laughs> all about the ties. <laughs> there, there are photos of Sandy and I standing amid piles of ties on our wardrobe truck, trying to decide which and where, because on any given day, there was eight to 10 or 12 major characters. I mean, that- usually it's the only way a man, you know, in a suit can express himself, <laughs> have yes. a little bit of color, a little bit of pan, a little bit of character. Uh, and then, of course, the ties change through the decades with the, with the difference of the suits and the lapel widths and the jacket shapes. Yeah. And there were there. I mean, you know, we've been asked this, haven't we? How many ties were there? I wish we. We should maybe figure it out. I, mean, I think. I think hundreds. On, that's like uh, like yeah. I mean, it's it was thousands. Yeah. It was thousands. Oh, thousands overall with extras as well. But just in terms of our our principles, and you didn't want two to clash, or you didn't want you know somebody to look better than the other person. It, it sort of, they had to work as a group, the ties as well. When there, were easily, there were easily 600 individual ties just in our speaking characters. Yeah. You know, and then plus yeah. 6,500 6, extras. So, well, you guys are professionals, so maybe not. Like when you're looking at this pile of ties, do you, do you, how do you like, I don't know, if, if I'm looking at that much pattern and stuff, it's, I feel like my mind is going to start melting or something. <laughs> so. Well, the thing to do is not think about it too hard. Yeah. Well, that's probably it. And, yeah. and, and just go do it instinctively. You know, that's what I, that's how I do it. I just sort mm-hmm. of, you know, have a couple in my hand and hold them up, you know, you know, with the actor usually in the outfit and you mm-hmm. sort of like do this, do this, or sometimes without. And it, and it just, you know. It's, it's sort of like, you know, it it's, it's just like, you know, any, anybody's taste, you're always going to be as an individual d- drawn to a certain kind of thing. And as a designer, you fall into a rhythm, you know, with the tie selection and, Mm. The fabric selection. I mean, this is what that character would choose. Yeah. And you try not to, I mean, like, you know, Russell's ties would be more interesting than Frank's. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So you'd, you'd try to not give Frank a Russell kind of tie mm-hmm. and vice versa. Yeah. I suppose. By the way, just talking about the collaboration here, I mean, is it just agreement straight down the middle or are the, were there any interesting disagreements that the two of you might have had about Brawls, some stuff? Yes. Fighting every day. No. Tell me about the fight. <laughs> no, we didn't. She's fight. a hideous human being to work with. <laughs> we, um, not we true. We didn't actually fight. No. I mean, no, we didn't, amazingly. It's a question that we get quite a lot. Um, and it's, it's born out of a lot of things. But the thing, after having been asked this question a couple of times, I always come back to, um, we've worked together a lot and we've developed a shorthand. And that's like money in the bank. Because there are certain things that that I, I can, I can sort of imagine that Sandy might be headed towards as far as a decision is concerned, although I'm constantly surprised Mm -hmm. by what it is. But the main thing other than the shorthand is that we are from the beginning, we've been quite close and quite good friends. And so regardless of what's going on, we're always laughing. But Mm -hmm. we can also agree to disagree. Which mm-hmm. does happen. It's I, you know, we yeah. don't agree on every single little thing because nope. we don't have exactly the same taste. But that sort of works. Mm-hmm. It sort of works in in something that has such scope and is so huge. There's there's room for there to be you know yeah. different tastes and different decisions being made. And also too, I mean, it, there's a moment as a department head, not always, 
but especially on something of this size where, I mean, you're greedy. I mean, and especially with the size of staff that, you know, we had where every day it's like from the second you get in the car in the morning to the time you get to the set and then go to the shop and then talk to the tailoring shop and then talk to the assistants and then talk to the buyers. There is a moment where honestly, you just go, please, God, does somebody have an idea about what this should be, or at least have somebody to bounce it off of, you know? And so that's kind of been the great thing. And there were no, no, we never, we never have any kind of moments of, you know, but it's like Sandy said, you mean, there are moments when someone will come up to us and say, Hey guys, what do you think of this fabric? Do you want the black one or the white one? And at exactly (laughs) the same time, Sandy will say black and I will say white. And then we just, we kind of look at one another and go, okay, great. (laughs) And then there'll be a decision. Yeah. It Uh, never came to blows. Not yet yet, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And I just wanted to, you know, we talked uh, earlier about how uh, Mr. Scorsese came in with his wealth of knowledge about all of this, but was there anything that you can recall where he specifically made a tweak of note regarding costuming on this? Not of anything. I mean, he, I mean, this is on on other films as well. He will say, "Mm, is there another tie? Can I see another tie option? And that would be it. It would never be as much as another whole outfit. And You'd always have another tie up your sleeve, obviously, because in case that question happens and it, it'll be a tie that I like as much or Christopher likes as much or, you know, there we go. Yes, there's this one. And then. And you've got 600 it. of them anyway to choose from in the well, back. Yeah, so. but that would be hopeless <laughs> coming to the set with 600 choices. We'd never sure. get the day started. I think the only, the only, the only moment of like, hmm, was there was a hat on Joe and it was about whether the brim. Oh, the brim. The brim was. The hat. So we had a sort of vaguely speaking like a pork pie shape. and. Joe wanted to wear the the brim Turned flipped up. up, and I, Sandy and I, kind of went up, and we were talking about it. We we're thinking, oh, but that looks sp- weird. It looked like it looked like the brim had flipped up by accident, right? And so, so we moved it. And so I went in with the stick, and unfortunately, like poked the tiger, and I went to reach for the brim, and and Joe was like, no, 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 <laughs> and that was like, and then Marty kind of said, yeah, 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 let's have it flipped up. That was the only. I mean, there's nothing. That was the major. only I mean, moment on the I mean, entire that's film. The detail. I mean, really, there's nothing. I love that he was pretty adamant. <laughs> this is the thing, though. This is what up. we were saying earlier: is these guys, these guys li- no, lived stuff. through this era. They mm. understand like the subtleties of what mm. the way a hat is cocked, the length of a tie. Sometimes when an actor is insistent on something and you don't agree, but it's not the end of the world if they do. I mean, you 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 have to let it go. Pick your battles, right? Yeah. So just kind of want to bring things down here and and, and, uh, ask a couple of sort of rapid fire questions for you. What movie costume do you wish you had a hand in designing? Okay, that's so difficult because (laughs) if I think of my favorite costumes, I mean, they're, they're my favorite because they're done really well. So I couldn't have done them any better. Right. So really the answer to that question is something which I think should have been done better, which of course I'm not going to tell you. Well, then how about you tell me what, what's like the most memorable movie costume design for you? Oh God, there are, there are many, but I suppose for me, the most memorable, the, the one that sort of had a huge impact was Death in Venice. All the right. costume was designed by Piero Tosi and I saw that as a very, as a, as a 14 year old. Yeah. And that's when I noticed costumes in films. How about I you, have a couple of them. A costume that I wish I had a hand in designing was the Darth Vader costume. <laughs> yeah. From, really? From, I didn't know that. From the original Star Wars. <laughs> and basically anything, anything Kubrick, mm. the like Barry Lyndon, 
or Clockwork Orange. And then one that we actually share, which you did not mention, is Cabaret. Cabaret, of course, yeah. I mean, that which, was that was similar, similar. And I saw that. I remember my mum snuck me into the cinema to see that because I was underage. <laughs> and that yeah, was amazing. Darth Vader, man, yeah. please. Genius. <laughs> That's a good answer. Uh, what's one small thing the average person can do? I swear I'm not asking this for my own benefit. But the average person can do to step up their sartorial game. Look up and not look at your phone. <laughs> ah, very good. I mean, there's the piece of advice that um, Coco Chanel gave, which is look in the mirror and take one thing off. Don't overdo it. Uh, yeah. Less is more. Uh, if you could wear only one color for the rest of your life, what would it be? Uh, <laughs> um, I will. So what's the penalty if I want to wear other colors? <laughs> Do you know what? The obvious answer is black, but I'd probably say blue. Because blue, you can go to nearly, blue's quite, you know, I could, you could go to practically black and then there are shades of blue that are flattering. Yeah, you've got a range you can blue. play. You've got a range. Yeah, that's a good one. I would likely go on a hunger strike if I was forced. <laughs> <laughs> um, black would be my answer, actually. Absolutely. That's, that's too easy. See, that's a cop out. I know, but. <laughs> hunger strike, that's the way. <laughs> hunger strike. Is there a specific outfit that really made you fall for, for this, this work? Oh God. I mean, I'd be going way back to my childhood, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember an outfit, actually. I do. Re okay. I'm going way back, really early 60s or sort of about mid 60s. And there was a girl that, that lived down the street and she was about two years older than me. And her mother had taken her to Carnaby Street, you know, Carnaby mm -hmm. Street in swinging 60s London. Mm. And she had on a teeny little mini dress that was lime, lime green and turquoise, swirly psychedelic pattern and then little hot pants underneath. And I wanted that outfit. And then as soon as I could, I, I tried to make myself a version of it. So Yeah. Awesome. God, I mean, I had this enormous, and here, here we go. Um, I had this enormous crush on Tina Turner when I was a teenager. And it was right when she was having her comeback. But just like everything Tina Turner wore, it just seemed like so sexy. And so like yeah. everything moved and everything glittered and that I kind just of thought, sequin wow. I mean, there's, there's a lot, looks, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, you could yeah. like talk about like the Dior bar suit, which... You know, I sketched endlessly in college, <laughs> poorly, by the way. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's, sort of there's so many. Coming back to one outfit that changed your yeah. life is pretty difficult. Yeah. But that's, that's the. That's Probably the nothing brief. from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome on Tina Turner, though, I imagine. Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Number one. Okay. Yeah. Well, and actually, actually, you know, Mel as well. <laughs> Thunderdome. Are you kidding me? I can't believe you just, I cannot believe you just threw down Thunderdome. I'm, I, it's one of my favorite movies from my teenage <laughs> no years. No way. Well, there we go. Please. Yeah. That opens up a whole new door for me on you. I want to spend another 30 minutes talking. <laughs> oh, God. God. <laughs> you can have a boys talk about that. <laughs> about all that, like the fanboy films from like the 80s and 90s. Totally. I'm down. And then I've been asking this of everyone at the end of the show lately. Uh, what's the movie that made you fall in love with movies? Well, I guess mine was Death in Venice. Yeah. And maybe before that, the first movie I ever saw was Mary Poppins. Which must have been a dream for you last year. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, that was amazing to actually work on that. It's one of the reasons I was I really wanted to do it because it was the first film I saw in a cinema. I must have been four years old. Wow. And then Mad Max for you, I guess. No, <laughs> not not Mad Max, but th this is definitely a two parter because before I knew that I was gonna that I was gonna pursue a career in film, I saw The Color Purple in the theater, and I just thought it was such a beautiful film. I still think it's a beautiful film. Um, and I love the costumes. I love everything about it. Um, but once I started, you know, um, doing this, 
there's the Visconti film, Bogaparta, the, the Leopard. Mm. And was anything Visconti? Any, any, much, no, anything. But, but that particular film, I was like, I couldn't believe it. And then I started thinking about like, who is this person? And then it was Piero Tozzi. And then you go to Death in Venice and you go to all these other films and you suddenly realize, oh my God, that's artistry. You know, yeah. you can do that. You can tell stories, you can move people, you know, by putting a frock on somebody and sending them onto the set. You know, it's so beautiful, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you've done a great job telling this story as well. The Irishman, it's, you guys crushed it. I mean, it, the, again, the volume is staggering throughout this three and a half hour epic. So uh, congratulations thank on you. that. And, and thank, thank you, so you so much, much for coming onto the show and talking about it. Thank, thank you. you so much. Sandy and Christopher's work on The Irishman is just one of countless aspects to mine on this three and a half hour production. It's a film that arguably edges out another Sandy Powell collaboration, Gangs of New York, for Scorsese's most ambitious work to date. And that's obviously saying something. This is an artist and his team of craftsmen and women operating at the absolute top of their games. So give this a look. The Irishman is streaming on Netflix right now, and you should really just feed this thing into your eyeballs ASAP. It's an epic achievement. The Call Sheet is a Netflix podcast hosted by me, Chris Tapley. The show is produced by Noah Eberhardt and the team at Blue Duck Media. Stuart Park created all the original music in this episode. And a special thanks to the team at Netflix. 